Well, good morning and uh, happy Labor Day weekend to you all. If you are here visiting from out of town, a special welcome to you. If you are getting ready for school this next week, good luck. We all face challenges, don't we? <laughs> and uh, some are bigger than others. You, you all look very different from this perspective. You just need to know that. I haven't been up here in this role in a very long time. I, I, I kind of wish that there were some wood slats in front of this podium so you wouldn't see my knees shaking so much. Um, but you're a gracious audience, and I'm sure that you will uh, be, be, be receptive of what I have to share this morning. We are closing out the book of Esther this morning. It has been a wonderful ride for eight or nine weeks, I think, we've been on this journey. If you've been here for that time, you have been enriched as I have been, I'm sure. So I invite you this morning to turn uh, to Esther chapter 9, verse 20, and we'll just read this last section from verse 20 in chapter 9 through chapter 10 and verse 3. Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted that what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agiite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan, that his evil plan and what he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purnum, after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what they had happened and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purnum should never fail fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purnum. <clears throat> Letters were sent to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purnim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obliged them. And they had obliged themselves and their offspring with regard to the feasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purnim as it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. 
King Azarus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I first want to thank Pastor Mike for not letting, not asking me to preach last Sunday. Um, Pastor Nate did a wonderful job with the, ten, the names of the ten sons of Haman, and I just couldn't have gotten through that myself. So this week is much better for me than last. So thank you, Pastor Nate, for doing a wonderful job last week with that. This section just kind of details again and kind of in a repetitive fashion establishes the Feast of Purim that has been celebrated for over 2,000 years amongst the Jews in various communities worldwide. And they continue to this day to commemorate what was established way back at this period of time. We have been um, on an absolute delightful journey through this book that is all narrative. It's a piece of narrative uh, biblical literature. Um, and a piece of narrative information like we've read and have we've heard um, has to be interpreted carefully because it's just a story that's being told. There aren't direct commands that say, you need to do this or you need to do this other than the commemoration of the Feast of Purim that we just uh, got done reading. Um, if you have been following with the, the guidebook that was made available, Pastor um, Mike said that there are three themes that he wanted to develop and has in fact developed week by week throughout this book of Esther. Three things, three significant things to look for as we look at this narrative information. And kind of in a, as a way of review this morning, I, I hope I'm not really going to be saying anything new. I just want to repeat some significant things that have already been said. Because repetition is the mother of learning. The more that things are repeated, the more that they're embedded in our brain, and the more that we can walk away um, enriched by them. So I'm just going to basically repeat things that have already been said to us through different mouths, through different spokespersons, um, that are, are significant in this wonderful book. Pastor Mike said to look for three key themes. The first one is divine providence or divine sovereignty. If you are new to Reformed theology or if you've dabbled with Reformed theology for years, you'll know that this is a hallmark of Reformed theology, divine sovereignty. We like to talk about it. One, because it's true, because it's repeated throughout Scripture. Every book mentions something to do with divine sovereignty. God is in control. God has a plan. God has decrees. God has a purpose in his endeavors with what he is doing on earth and throughout history and in the future. God is in control. We rest upon that as an assurance. And indeed, without directly addressing the Jehovah God of the universe, we can see that God's hand is working throughout the book of Esther. The secondly, one, a theme of human responsibility or human faithfulness. Again, this is another recurring theme in Reformed theology, but it has limits. We realize that humans are responsible to be faithful. We are not responsible for the results of our actions. God is ultimately in control of the results. We are required to be faithful. 
And Mordecai and Esther have shown that, that when the opportunities presented themselves, they were faithful to say something, to do something, to be obedient to what they knew to be true. And then God was left with the results. And the third is the absurdity of wickedness. The absurdity or the foolishness of wickedness. We saw that the proverb, the wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. We saw that lived out in wonderful fashion between Haman and Mordecai. It, again, that premise is repeated in the New Testament, Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that will you also reap. The absurdity of wickedness was in living color in the book of Esther. Pastor Mike, Pastor Nate, and Pastor AJ, in my opinion, had didn't, have done a wonderful job in the past weeks of going through this book and revealing these three themes and expanding upon them, detailing them, and motivating us and encouraging us to understand them in a greater and deeper way and what our relationship is to those great themes. If I could summarize the book of Esther in a simple sentence, it would be this. After this, you can probably take a little nap and go to sleep because I'm not going to say anything more significant, but get this. God delights in displaying his power. And God delights in delivering his people. That's it. Pretty simple. In fact, you could probably write that theme over every book of the Bible. Put it right on the inside of your cover because that is repeated from Genesis to Revelation. God delights in displaying his power. God delights in delivering his people. Sometimes those two events take place at the exact same time. Other times they're separated by centuries. But the theme is consistent and it's true. From the Red Sea to the empty tomb, God delights in displaying his power. It's the most dramatic expressions of this that are the most memorable. They make the greatest Sunday school lessons. You know, the plagues in Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. God giving Moses the commandments on Mount Sinai. The walls of Jericho that come tumbling down. Or the calming of the sea of Galilee when Jesus was in a boat with his disciples. The most dramatic expressions of these things are what stick in our mind. They make the best Sunday school lessons. But they're not always the most significant. You see, sometimes when God acts quietly, it makes a big difference. The, there's probably, if you, if you came up through Sunday school, you probably learned, I can guarantee it, you learned two songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then you know the one, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Every person in Sunday school has probably walked away knowing those two songs. You would think that, well, if they're so universal, they must be scriptural. Well, they are, but we're never commanded to teach every child in Sunday school lesson these two songs. But they get taught universally because of the truth that they 
give out. The rabbis in the Talmud, which was a, a commentary on the Old Testament, they made mention of a story in the Old Testament that was taught to the Jewish children in synagogues from the time that they could learn to sit still enough to hear a story. As common as those two songs were in our experience, there was another story in the Old Testament that was taught to the, the, to the small Jewish children as they grew up. And that was a story in the life of the prophet Elijah. I love Elijah. He's just so great. He had just returned from Mount Carmel where he had a contest with the prophets of Baal. And they erected two altars. And there was to see which one was the true living God, the God of the Baal or the God of the Bible. And the priests of Baal were there and erected their, their altar and Elijah was there, erected his altar and put offering on it and he waited for the prophets of Baal, for their God to act. Their God never acted. But the God of the Bible, Jehovah God, sent flash down Again, one of these miraculous, wonderful expressions of godly power. And as soon as that happened, Elijah put to death. He killed the prophets of Baal. Well, Jezebel, the queen, didn't like that very much. So she put out an edict. She said, I'm going to get you, Elijah. After this great expression of the power of God, Elijah gets scared because of a sentence from the queen. And he runs and hides, and he sulks in the wilderness, and he starts to lament, God, I'm the only prophet left, and they've killed everybody else. What am I to do? And the messenger came and told him, Elijah, prepare for a journey. Go to Mount Horeb. It's 40 days' journey. You will be provided food and water and go on this journey. And he woke from his sleep and he saw a cake baking on the coals and a jug of water. And he ate, traveled 40 days to Mount Horeb. And he got to Mount Horeb and another messenger came and said, Elijah, go outside. The presence of the Lord is going to pass by. Oh, this ought to be good. This ought to be really good. He goes out. And what happens? A whirlwind, maybe a tornado-like uh, phenomena, and it breaks the rocks in front of Elijah. And what does he realize? God was not in the whirlwind. And then an earthquake shakes the mountain upon which he is standing. And what does Elijah understand? God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire comes and consumes everything around him. And what does Elijah realize? The presence of God was not in the fire. Then what happened? You know, a whisper, a still small voice, that was the presence of God. And this story was woven into the fabric of the young Jewish child because it was part of their worldview. Yes, God is sometimes very expressive with what he does, but more often than not, it's a whisper. It's quiet, maybe even silent. And we need to pay attention. 
God is not resistant to, afraid of, nor does he avoid the grand displays of power, but he wants us to look for, acknowledge, and respond to the subtle, silent, and hidden revelations of his presence and his plan. I love the graphic of the, what we've been seeing the last weeks of the pawn, the most insignificant player on a chessboard, the most indispensable, the most dispensable, the one that's worth the least, but when the light shines on it, it reveals the king, the most valuable, the most prized of all the chess pieces. I love that picture. It's not always the most grandiose, the most expressive things that God does that we need to pay attention to, but sometimes the quiet, the subtle, the hidden. There are two main takeaways that I have from the book of Esther that I want to share with you this morning. Just two main things. There could be many, many more, but two, one, two things that I would like to draw our attention to. The first is this, that God uses pain and tragedy sometimes to accomplish his purpose. There was almost a throwaway line early in the book of Esther where the author says that Esther did not have a mom and a dad. She was an orphan. There's a story there. How did that happen? We're not told. Did they die of disease? Possibly. Did they die of some of this anti-Semitic persecution and, and conflict that the Jews were receiving in the provinces? Maybe. Was it an accident? Could be. But regardless of how her parents died, or when they died, we're not told, it was a traumatic event for this young person. It had to have been. You can't lose both of your parents at any point in your life without walking away unaffected by it. There was pain in Esther's life. But as you all know now, that set her up to become a steward of Mordecai who had connections with the king. And it put her in position for later in her life to become the queen. So there was purpose in her pain. I don't know your personal story, but you have a story. We all have a story. And all of our stories are different. But there is definitely pain at some point in your personal story. I want to say something that might challenge your thinking. But don't reject it immediately, but ponder it. Your story is God's story. You say, but there's, there's tragedy in my story. There's pain in my... I'm, I'm a, a victim of abuse. I have gone in dark places either because of personal sin or the sin that have others done to me. My life is not pure, my life is hurtful and painful, I'm not saying that God is the cause of those things. 
God is not the orchestrator. He is not the author. He is not the condoner of sin in any way, shape, matter, or form. But he, because he's sovereign, orchestrates the evil in our lives to accomplish his purposes, as he did in Esther's. Peter makes a poignant statement when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. That's the human response, isn't it? There's something strange, abnormal, unbiblical happening to me when these fiery trials are coming upon me. Peter says, don't consider it strange. Why? It just might be God's working. Several hundred years before Esther, there was a prophet that arose in Judah, the southern kingdom, by the name of Isaiah. He was brought onto the scene at a very traumatic national crisis. Their king, Isaiah, had just died. He was one of the very few mostly good kings of southern, the southern kingdom of Judah. He had reigned for 52 years. And it was a national crisis when he died. And Isaiah was brought on the scene to give some sound advice to the nation. He said, although our earthly king now has died, it doesn't affect our heavenly king. He is still ruling. He is still reigning. He is still sovereign. We will get through this. And in chapter 6 of his book, it talks about a vision that Isaiah had. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there were these seraphim and, and winged creatures flying above the throne. And they were chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when he realized he was in this setting in front of Jehovah God, his reaction was like most people in that setting. Woe is me. I'm in trouble because I am a man of unclean lips. Yes, even a prophet can have dirty lips. But within that setting, he then saw a seraphim go to the altar and grab a coal and bring it to him and touched his lips to cleanse his uncleanliness. And he was made whole. He was made righteous. He was made acceptable before God the Father in this vision. And then God the Father asks a question. Who will go for us? Who can we send? And out of abundance of gratitude, Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord, send me. And Jehovah gives him something to say. Okay, Isaiah, go to this people. Go to your people and tell them, You know, I'm going to speak to you, but you're not going to hear. I'm going to tell you some truthful things that aren't going to be accepted. Your heart will grow hard and cold and resilient. God the Father told Isaiah that he was going to go on a mission that was going to fail. Not very pleasant. Well, Isaiah asks a good question. How long will this last? How long? How long? And God says, until the houses are barren and the cities are desolate. 
and they will be taken into captivity. But there's hope of a future redeemer. Ugh. What a terrible mission. What a terrible assignment. You know, Isaiah makes a cameo appearance in Hebrews chapter 11. The Hall of Fame of Faith. The writer of Hebrews is going through the great people of faith. Moses and Abraham and David. And he gets toward the end of his list and he kind of runs out of room. So he just lists some things, some victories, some, some great things that the, the previous men of faith have done. But he also includes some tragedies. And one of the things he mentions is there was a prophet that was sawn in two. Jewish tradition holds that that was Isaiah. You see, his message was so unpopular that the people rose up, stuffed him in a hollow log, and sawed him in two. And the writer of Hebrews says, such men are worthy of praise. I love the scene in the Lord of the Rings when Frodo realizes the weight of responsibility that he has with the ring of power. And he turns to Gandalf and he says, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I wish this need not have happened in my lifetime. So do I, says Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Spiritual truth, I think. What do we do with the time that has been given to us? We are not held responsible to be successful. We are, we are held responsible to be faithful. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We're not guaranteed success, but we are asked to be Faithful. We are related to a God who controls our future. In fact, he's controlling our present. Your life story, the struggles that you and I have had and are having, are for a divine purpose, are for a divine reason. Pastor Mike, a couple of weeks ago, nailed this point home. We said God's purposes cannot be thwarted, cannot be altered, cannot be detoured by our petty actions or by the actions of sinful man. That God is sovereign. He will accomplish. He will do. He will bring about his plan. He will bring about his purposes. You see, the purpose that Esther was fulfilling was a promise that was given long time before her time. It was, fact, it was in fact given originally to Adam and Eve. As God was cursing them for their sin, he looked at the serpent and said, you shall be always, command you will be always, from this point on, you will be smitten to the ground to crawl on your belly. 
And the woman's seed, at some point, will have enmity with your seed. There will be a struggle. There will be a conflict. And your seed will bruise her, he her seed's heel, but her seed will crush your head. That was the first indication, the first possible indication of a coming redeemer, of a coming Messiah. And it was later explained in greater detail throughout the Old Testament, and we know now that that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ when he came and fulfilled. He was the redeemer that was promised in Genesis. He was the seed of Abraham that would bless every nation on the earth, that through Abraham's seed, every nation will be blessed. That person was Jesus Christ. But it couldn't have been accomplished if the Jewish people were annihilated because the promise was to be in the household of David. It was through the Jewish people that the Messiah would arise. And our enemy knew that. And so he was instrumental. He was active in trying to thwart that from day one. But God's purposes, God's decree were not altered at all. In fact, they were fulfilled. But it came through pain. Many of you know Susan Alps. She hasn't been here among us for almost two years now because she's dealing with cancer treatment, repetitive treatments for cancer. If you were to sit with Susan on her porch and talk to her for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you would know that this is a woman who knows God. Was it because of cancer treatment or in spite of cancer treatment? I don't know. She's a woman who knows God. I know some of the struggles that some of you are having currently. You walk with God hand in hand, tighter, more intimate through those times of struggle, through those times of pain, than through the times of joy. That's just the way it happens to go. If you're more than 50 years old, you have seen a tremendous shift in the culture of our country just in the last few years. And if you reflect upon the way that it was when you were a child, you can see what has happened morally in our culture. It's changing rapidly, very fast. And we don't necessarily have to respond to it, but inevitably, I think we will. You know who Jack Phillips is in Colorado, the baker, who um, has had multiple lawsuits brought against him for his stand against Christian marriage. Baronel Stutzman, here in Washington State, the florist, who took a similar stand for biblical marriage and is suffering greatly because of it. I don't know how much longer we as believers will be able to go untouched, as it were, by the cultural moral pressures that will come against us and the things that we stand for. We need to be ready. We need to be faithful. We need to be ready to endure pain because I think it's coming. So the first takeaway is that God uses pain and tragedy to accomplish his will. Secondly, God used Esther and Mordecai's wise choices for his glory. At a moment in time, the book says, she was born for such a time as this. She was ready. She was in the right place at the right time for the right purpose and said the right thing in the right way 
at the right time to the right person. And God worked mightily. Isn't it interesting to know, to think, to envision? What can God do with a simple act of obedience on my part? Who knows? God knows, but maybe we can't see the end from the, the thing that we're currently in. I love the story of a man named Mordecai Ham. Mordecai. Eh, that's a familiar name. We've talked about it for a long time now. Mordecai Ham was born to a Baptist preacher's household in the late 1800s. He was, in fact, an eighth generation. There were eight generations of Baptist preachers before him. So it was kind of inevitable what his parents, his dad, was going to encourage him to do. When he was nine years old, he, set, he tells that he sensed God's call into the ministry at a nine-year-old boy. It is possible for God to call somebody into ministry that early. Don't look down upon your youth if you are. But as he grew into his teenage years, he saw the abject poverty that his parents endured, that his grandparents endured, because the ministry then didn't really pay much. And he had better plans for his future. So when he got out of high school, he enrolled in college and studied business and law and wanted to either go into business or become a lawyer. He got out of school and decided to go into sales, and he moved to Chicago. And married, he married a wonderful Christian gal in like June of the year, uh, I believe it was 1900. But by December of that year, he had a divine unsettledness with his choice. And he decided at that point to give up his salesman career and to pursue a calling into ministry. So he became a, an itinerant evangelist and a pastor. And he toured the whole southern parts of the United States holding revival meetings. A group of businessmen in Charlotte, North Carolina, in 1927, asked for Mordecai Ham to come and hold meetings outside of town. Um, and they erected a tent out in a field, and Mordecai came and started holding revival meetings. And people from town would come and hear him each night. About halfway through the week, two 15-year-old boys decided to check it out. There was something happening outside of town that they wanted to see what was going on. So these two boys came to the tent meeting that night, and Mordecai Ham's posture was such that it made these boys a little uneasy. You see, Mordecai liked to point at people <laughs> and talk about sinning and sinners. Well, these two boys didn't like being called sinners. But they wanted to come the next night to hear what he had to say again. So they decided to join the choir. He said, if we sit behind him, he can't point at us. They couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but they sat behind Mordecai Ham that second night. And Mordecai began his, his message by saying, there is a great sinner among us tonight that will meet Jesus. One of those 15-year-old boys knew he was talking about him. And when it came time for the invitation, he came forward 
and expressed faith in Jesus Christ, and that boy's name was Billy Graham. And now you know the rest of the story. It says, historians say that Billy Graham in his lifetime preached the gospel to approximately two billion people. Maybe because of the reversal that Mordecai Ham had to pursue ministry instead of business. Did God have another plan to convert Billy Graham? Possibly, but this is the one that he used. A man was faithful, a man was obedient to God's call into ministry, and it resulted in a tremendous advance of the kingdom of God. What might God call you or I to do in this next season of life? What challenge lies before you that you maybe need to reinterpret as God's blessing instead of God's cursing? God's not angry with you. Regardless of what is in your life right now, as a believer, God is not angry with you. He is not punishing you. But pain can sometimes come to expand our vision of what God is wanting to accomplish in us, through us. See, he sent, he, God is, is set on glorifying himself. God delights in displaying his glory. And he delights in delivering his people. Expressed beautifully in the book of Esther, Virtually every other book says the same thing. Our God expresses and he delights in expressing his power, glorifying himself, and delivering his people. It might not come right away. We like microwave results. Give me my popcorn now. It might not come that fast. It might be surprising how it comes. Not at all how we expect, but it will come. I've read the end of the book. We win. We win. God is glorified. God reveals himself. God's plan wins. It's not going to be thwarted. It's not going to be turned aside. It's not going to be overridden. Evil may seem to prosper. Evil may seem to win. Pain may seem to be hard. Paul said, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. Oh, God, give us that mindset. This temporal life that we find our feet firmly planted in is temporal. We are sojourners. We are just transients in this time frame. Eternity is ahead of us, brothers and sisters. Eternity lies before us. It will be never-ending never-ending delight and joy in God's presence we will, when we will see him face to face and the mysteries of his workings will be revealed and we'll know, we'll know we won't have to guess anymore. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what my takeaway from the book of Esther is. That's what my takeaway from the whole of Scripture is. God wins. I want to be on his side. Don't you? Let's pray. Jehovah God, thank you for revealing your 
beautiful nature and your beautiful character throughout Scripture. Thank you for your sovereign control over your creation. Thank you that nothing takes you by surprise, nothing takes you by accident. You are behind things when we don't see. You are whispering more often than you are shouting. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear and to see. Soften our hearts to understand. May we not be like the recipients of Isaiah's prophecy, but may we truly hear and see and soften to hear and understand who you are and respond to you the way that we should. Thank you for this book that we've been studying. Thank you for its challenging way of, of, of encouraging us. Thank you for its, for its message. Thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown yourself in this book. We have a great and gracious and faithful God who accomplishes his decree, brings about redemption and salvation, and ultimately will give us a future that is great. great. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.